Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Our message this morning will be coming as last week's did from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And we will be focusing specifically on the Beatitudes and their application uh, to our present situation today. So let's read together Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 16. This is the word of God. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let us pray. God our Father, We pray by the Spirit that you would open your word to us today and let it come upon us with great power, both to transform us and to make us the light of the world, a city on a hill, glorifying you, drawing all to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, based on our consideration last week, we want to apply the Beatitudes in a way that takes into account the storyline of Matthew, which is that Jesus is true Israel. And so we've seen that he recapitulates the history of Israel. He comes out of Egypt like Israel came out of Egypt. He has a baptism like Israel did. They're led into the desert to be tempted. He's led into the desert to be tempted. Moses is 40 days and nights on the mountain without food or water, and so is Jesus. And then as Moses received the law and gave it, at a mountain, and then later on in the book of Deuteronomy, preached a series of sermons on the law. So Jesus now gives the law anew and preaches a sermon on it at a mountain. And so this is really the first step in application, which is understanding. And the uh, part of understanding is to understand the storyline that Matthew is giving us and also the historical context. Jesus preaches this sermon... Uh, 40 years, basically, prior to the time when Jerusalem, the holy city, is going to be trampled underfoot 
by men, by Roman legions. The temple is going to be destroyed. God, working in this historical context, is going to bring about a great division in the covenant community. He is forming up his people around the true seed of Abraham, around the new and greater Moses, the true Savior, the deliverer from the true Pharaoh and the true Egypt, and that is Jesus Christ. And just as God through Moses brought about a great division in the covenant people uh, so many years before that, um, so he's going to do so through Jesus. Those who followed Moses, those who heeded Moses' words, were delivered from Egypt, brought through the desert, and brought into the land. Those who did not um, were left behind. They were cut out, basically, of God's people. And so there is going to be a conflict brewing over this 40-year period, starting with the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, between those who believe Jesus' word, who cling to him as the Messiah. And you have all of this played out in apocalyptic language in the book of Revelation. This is the true bride. This is the true heavenly Jerusalem. This is the true people of God, those who uh, cling to Christ. Those who reject Christ and refuse 40 years of opportunities to repent and to turn to him in belief are described in the book of Revelation in a number of uh, unflattering terms. They're described as the great harlot, the false bride. Uh, they're described as Babylon. They're described as Egypt. They're described as Sodom, speaking spiritually. These are the ones who have really rejected God, even though they bear the, ap the outward trappings of they have circumcision, uh, they, they go to Jerusalem to worship, they worship at the temple, they have all of these outward trappings of being the people of God, but if they do not receive Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, then they themselves cannot be the seed of Abraham. So we walked through these things in some detail last week, but to give us kind of a nutshell view from 50,000 feet up, Consider the way this time in church history is presented in the seventh chapter of Daniel, which John read to us during our scripture reading this morning. Now, that's Daniel's great vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom and power that all nations should serve him. It's very clear in the vision that this takes place during the days of the fourth great ancient empire, which was the Roman Empire. And there, Daniel says, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now notice, he's not coming on the clouds to the earth. Okay, He's coming on the clouds to heaven. This is a description of the, the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven uh, 40 days after his resurrection, 10 days prior to the day of of Pentecost. So he comes on the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days, and it says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now you can see this is what Jesus is anticipating when in, later in the book of Matthew he stands on another mountain with his disciples. He's about to ascend up into heaven as they watch. And just before this he says to them, look, this is what's about to happen right now. All authority and all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, 
you go and make all nations which belong to me now, as a matter of right, you make them as you are. You make them my disciples, which means you baptize them in the triune name. You teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is going to be a long-term task, and you can do it because I'm with you, even to the end of the age. So, Jesus ascends into heaven, and the events of Daniel 7 take place. But the interesting thing about Daniel 7, and the part that we typically miss as modern evangelicals, is that there is a two-stage process to receiving the kingdom. The Son of Man is not the only one who receives the kingdom in Daniel 7. He receives it first, and then later, the saints of the Most High receive it. There's a two-stage process in receiving the kingdom. So, in verses 13 and 14, the Son of Man receive it. And then we're told four verses later in verse 18 that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. In between, we have a time of persecution. The saints are being persecuted by various powers. This is all still happening in the days of the Roman Empire. It says in um, verse 25 that the saints shall be persecuted and the saints shall be given into the hands of these powers who are persecuting them for a time. But just as, then the, just as the thrones of the Most High were set up to render judgment in favor of the Son of Man over His persecutors, so the, the Ancient of Days shall render judgment in favor of the saints over their persecutors. Verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So we see that there is a two-stage process in this giving of the kingdom or this receiving of the kingdom. First, Jesus suffers persecution and receives the kingdom when God renders judgment in his behalf. That judgment took the form of the resurrection from the dead and the ascension to God's right hand. Secondly, the disciples of Jesus are going to suffer persecution and receive the kingdom when God renders judgment in their behalf. Now, both of these are judgments that take place in history. They take place in the middle of history. We have a modern evangelical tendency to want to push these off into the future, off into the end of time, uh, to the second advent of Christ. But when we pay careful, uh, 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 pay, uh, careful attention to Scripture, we see that these things are happening in the middle of history. Indeed, they happened 2,000 years ago. So... Jesus gives the Beatitudes here and many other teachings during his ministry to explain to the disciples this two-stage process. At one point, Jesus will say, even as I receive a kingdom, so I give a kingdom to you. Now, all his disciples didn't understand a lot of this until Jesus was resurrected. I mean, he, he expressly tells them of his persecution, his crucifixion, his upcoming resurrection... They just don't have the framework to, to know what to do with that. They don't, know how, they don't have the bookshelves to, to shelve those books at that point in time. But once he's resurrected, they do, and everything begins to fall into place. So we see these two stages in the Beatitudes. We see suffering and persecution, and then receiving the kingdom when God renders judgment. First, Jesus will be poor or oppressed in spirit. 
he will mourn. And notice that he doesn't just mourn over his personal condition. Certainly he grieved in the Garden of Gethsemane as he knew what awaited him. But his mourning didn't just concern whatever his personal circumstances were. His mourning, we're expressly told, concerned Jerusalem. It concerned even those who were persecuting him. He wept over Jerusalem as being the city who was turning away from God's blessing, turning away from God's shalom, God's peace. And so he mourned for uh, this in this outward and big macro uh, way. Uh, Jesus will hunger and thirst for righteousness. He will hunger and thirst to see righteousness cover Jerusalem and cover the world. He will be merciful. That is, he will be faithful and loyal and loving. The, the word mercy, we'll look more at this in a minute. It's connected to a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that really designates God's covenant love, his never changing love. That's really a better concept of it. It's not just a matter of sympathy. That's just a small part of it. And so he will have his never changing love. It's, it will say in the scriptures that Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. When they're all scattered, after his arrest, Jesus' love doesn't depart from them. He doesn't scatter. He doesn't leave. So Jesus will be merciful. Jesus will be pure in heart. He will serve his Father in every way, in heart, in spirit, in body, through everything. Jesus will be the peacemaker. That is, he will be the one who points the true way to God's shalom, which means a lot more than an absence of hostilities. It means the good life. It means everything in its place, everything good, every blessing. And Jesus will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he will receive God's judgment in the resurrection and ascension. He will receive judgment and he will receive the kingdom, which means... He will be comforted. He will inherit the earth. He will be filled. He will receive mercy. Now, again, we have to remember this is not this limited word that just applies to sinners. It means God's great, faithful, never-changing love. He will see God. He will see the Father, and He will be called the Son of God. And then in the second stage, the disciples will be poor, as Jesus is telling them. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. They're going to be poor and oppressed in spirit. They're going to mourn. They will be meek. They will hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will show faithful covenant love, and they will be pure in heart. They will be then the peacemakers pointing the true way to God's shalom, and they will be persecuted for righteousness' sake, which is to say persecuted for Jesus' name. And then they will receive judgment in their favor and receive the kingdom. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will receive mercy and see God and be called sons of God. So, two-stage process here. And Jesus is preaching this sermon as this whole process is beginning to be lived out. Now, let's make three big picture observations here before we jump into the details. The first thing we need to see, big picture, is that there is eschatological movement. That is, there's movement into the future toward a particular goal. Poverty of spirit, which is a reference to oppression of spirit, being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Oppression of spirit, mourning, 
hungering and thirsting for righteousness in a world that is devoid of it, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, are not perpetual conditions in God's plan. And therefore, neither are they perpetual measures of holiness or spiritual authenticity. They are meant to move forward to a fulfillment. They are meant to move forward toward vindication and blessing. And this vindication and blessing do not wait until the end of time, even though the absolute fullness of that vindication and blessing does occur on the last resurrection. So that's the first big observation. These are not perpetual conditions, and therefore they're not measures of holiness uh, at all times. Second, the saints definitively received the kingdom once for all when judgment was made in their favor with the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus received the kingdom and the saints received the kingdom. Those are definitive historical events that occur once for all. Jesus has received the kingdom upon his ascension that is never to be undone, that is never to be repeated. The saints of the Most High received the kingdom in 70 AD. That also is a definitive historical event which is never to be repeated. Um, the full flowering, though, of the kingdom is something that grows over time. It is something that will reach its full perfection and culmination at the last day on the final resurrection. That is when 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus will present to the Father a perfected kingdom. In between, the, the kingdom will grow in its flowering and in its victory over the world. And if we could plot history however many thousand years it's going to take in between those two events. It's been 2,000 years and running now. And it, it would look like a, stark, a stock market uh, graph in an overall period of, of bull market, which means if you plot the big plot line, it's going to be going up. Whichever way. It's going to be going up. But it doesn't mean it's going to be going constantly up. If you, if you break it down into a more... Uh, Looking at more detail, you see it's bouncing up and down. It's going up. Sometimes it dips down real low. It's just over time, the overall plot line is going to be toward greater victory and greater flowering of the kingdom. So, what that means is this. Even though the kingdom has come into the world definitively, once for all, that's never to be repeated, it is still legitimate for us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because God's will isn't being perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven right now, is it? No. And so, while His kingdom has come definitively, yet its full flowering has not yet come. And that is what we're praying for. So there is this pattern of, in a sense, receiving the kingdom anew. As the saints suffer and endure and prevail in new historical settings. Okay. And that brings us then to the application of the Beatitudes to us today. So, as the disciples of Jesus, as the saints of the Most High, we have already once for all received the kingdom.
But there is another sense in which as saints living in America in 2012, we need to receive the kingdom anew, if you know what I mean. We need to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For we live in a world in which things are badly wrong. Things are badly out of place, and we desperately need for God to set things right. And that's what the coming of the kingdom and power does. It sets everything right. So we need for the kingdom to come anew in this sense. We need to see God's will be done here where we live as it is done in heaven. We need to see God's righteousness being expressed here, high and low, front to back, and side to side. And until we do, we need to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We need to mourn when the unrighteous rule and when the righteous are oppressed, and which is what is meant by that whole thing of poverty in spirit. Consider Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked man rules, the people mourn or groan. It's a word that really means sigh. It's a, it's a sighing under sadness. Okay? When the righteous rejoice... I mean, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rules, the people mourn. And so we mourn when we look around and we don't see righteousness. We don't see righteousness down low. We don't see righteousness among the so-called little people, which is who most of us are, little people, just living our lives. We don't see it there when we look out, and we certainly do not see it in high places. We don't see it in those who are powerful and those who rule. In Psalm 43, it says, Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And there, again, it is those who are persecuting uh, him for righteousness' sake. Okay. So we should identify with the name and the cause of Christ and his righteous reign. And while we should not seek persecution... And this, this has been one of the problems. Failure to understand the Beatitudes in terms of the storyline of Matthew and in terms of the historical setting has, has uh, resulted in a tendency of the church uh, in order to try to find perpetual application of each one of these Beatitudes to take them in a pietistic direction so that all the time under all conditions we're supposed to be mourning. Well, how do we do that? We have to take that and just turn it inward and just say, well, we're just mourning over our personal sin. Well, certainly we want to mourn over when we see unrighteousness in ourselves. But that's, that's just part of what it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus mourned over Jerusalem because he didn't see righteousness there. And so he was mourning over that. He was longing to see righteousness out there. The church has long had a difficult issue of reconciling the internal and the personal, um, personal piety and the external and the societal level. We've tended as a church uh, historically to go one way or the other. Um, we either turn it all inward and say we're, that mourning all the time perpetually, no matter what the conditions are out there, is a measure forever of holiness. No, it's not. When God does a great work, 
when God brings thousands and millions of people to know Christ and raises up righteous leaders and brings his shalom and brings blessing and prosperity and, and godliness everywhere? No, don't mourn. Mourning at that point is not a measure of holiness. You're stuck if you're mourning at that point. Now, if you have a particular sin that you're wrestling with, sure, you mourn over that. But you see what I'm saying. This is meant to go somewhere. It's not just supposed to be some kind of perpetual measure of holiness that we find something to mourn over. Well, we don't have to look for very far for something to mourn over today. There's plenty out there, okay? But the church has either tended to go in that direction or, and, and, and be suspicious of any kind of, of sense of trying to bring God's righteousness on a broad cultural and societal level, or the church has tended to go exclusively in the societal and cultural direction and to ignore the importance of personal righteousness and personal devotion to God. And that's how uh, the church went in a liberal direction in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And so the evangelicals see all of that. They see the liberalism. They see the departure from God's word, the rejection of, of the real gospel. They see Christians who can no longer say the Apostles' Creed and mean it with all of this emphasis on changing society. Okay? Uh, this is what brought us prohibition and things like that. Okay? They see that and they go, aha, what is, what is this turning away from God result from? It, turn, it results from trying to see God's righteousness applied on a macro scale. So we're not having anything to do with that. We're keeping it all right here. We're keeping it all inside. Okay? Or you, you have the reverse problem. Well, what we need to be doing is effectively praying, as Jesus taught us, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth, meaning not just somewhere on earth, Thy will be done everywhere on earth, by every body on earth, with a joyful heart, as it is in heaven, starting with me. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness everywhere, starting with me. That is the proper biblical application. And so when we have this hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and when we mourn, when we see unrighteousness in here, or out there, then we need to live, we need to conduct ourselves as Christians in our total lives, certainly in our worship, but in our total lives, we need to live in such a way that makes it plain that we are willing to suffer persecution for Jesus' name which is what suffering for righteousness' sake means. It doesn't mean we go out and either try to provoke authorities to persecute us, like this is some, again, perpetual measure of holiness. It doesn't mean that we try to be so weird that we're going to get uh, some persecution for righteousness because we're just too weird. And that's been another problem in the church. For example... In the early church, there were waves of persecution that came. First, it came from the Jewish establishment. Then it came from the Roman government. With these waves of persecution, there were many martyrs who died for the faith. And these martyrs were rightly seen as being heroes. But again, 
They then took this persecution and this martyrdom and they made it a perpetual measure of what it really means to be saintly. And so you had Christians who were actually looking somehow to be martyred. I mean, you couldn't really be spiritual and really be holy unless you're martyred, which is what led to extreme asceticism in uh, different periods of the early church. It leads to people going out in the desert and living on the top of some rock pillar for years. What is that? It's kind of a living martyrdom. You know, wearing horsehair jackets, not having any food, sleeping on a rock. I mean, all these kind of things. If you can't get somebody to persecute you and martyr you, then you have to come up with some kind of a living martyrdom so you can show everybody how holy you are. Well, you see how there's elements of truth in there. These were truly heroes who died a martyr's death. But then you see the church not truly understanding the eschatological direction that, that persecution is supposed to go. It's not just, we got to come up with a way to be persecuted one way or another. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. But what we do need to do, and this is an area where we as evangelicals largely fall short today, is that do we live in such a way? I mean, not in some perverted, weird way seeking to be persecuted. None of that. That's ridiculous. But nevertheless, live with a, such a devotion to God, a, such a, a hunger and thirst for righteousness in ourselves and, other, and everywhere, so that it's clear that we're willing to be persecuted for Jesus' name. I saw something very interesting. You know, uh, recently there's been uh, quite a commotion um, with... Um, President Obama's administration effort to require all um, employers, and that would include uh, like uh, religious hospitals, Catholic church-owned hospitals, Baptist church-owned hospitals, and stuff like that, and other ministries like that, to include in the health insurance they provide contraceptive um, services and um, so forth and to, to require them to do this. Now, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, Church of Rome, of course, has an issue of conscience with them because they have long taught against any form of contraception. That's a point of, con of uh, conscience with them. But even uh, branches of the church that have not had that kind of a, a position on contraception nevertheless see what this is. This is the federal government dictating um, what you will do, what you will provide, and they're requiring uh, health insurance to really extend to things that have not traditionally been considered really part of, of health care anyway, you know, contraceptive services and so forth. And um, I saw on a show a group of pastors um, and priests who had been gathered uh, together. And so they had uh, several different uh, Roman Catholic priests were there. Uh, they had um, um, they had several uh, African American ministers there. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, both of them seemed to be uh, evangelical. They had Southern Baptists there. They had a whole group of probably twenty, twenty, 
And it was interesting. All of these um, different uh, congregational type uh, backgrounds and denominational backgrounds and so forth and distinctives were represented um, there. And yet every uh, one of them said that they were willing to go to jail over this issue. They were not going to comply with this if, if the law continued as it was. And they were willing. They're staying on, on TV. They're willing to go to jail for this. And it's amazing that God seems to be bringing uh, to the fore and, and causing to a register on a lot of different elements of his church some of the issues that are being implicated and producing a spirit, a new spirit in his people of a willingness to understand where the lines are and of a willingness to suffer for Christ's sake. It, it, I was very much heartened to see that. All these different pastors from these different denominations and every one of them saying, I will go to jail over this. I will go to jail. And that's, we need to live in such a way that expresses that. Now, living that way doesn't mean we go around saying, I'll go to jail. I just want you to know. I'll go to jail. I'll suffer, you know, because like you have a problem. That, that's not the way you live that way. You live that way simply by showing in your personal life, your family life, and everything we do, that Christ is our Lord. Christ is Lord. It all belongs to Him, and we belong to Him, and we are His temple, and so we live for Him. So living in such a way that you're willing to be persecuted is not living with a glum face. It's actually living with a, with a cheerful face and a happy face because Jesus is Lord. Who is Lord? Not the ones who may be persecuting us sooner than we think, but Jesus. Um, Psalm 37, let me mention this. If in your family devotions, if you want to look further into this, into the Beatitudes and what they mean, I urge you to read Psalm 37 in your family devotions. It's a psalm of David that he wrote when he was an old man. So we know that David is one of the main types of Christ from the Old Testament. He wrote this when he was was an old man. He had been through all the persecution as a type of Christ, and then his exaltation as a type of Christ's resurrection and exaltation and so forth. And he's writing to younger folk. He's writing to younger folk who are fretting and chafing and getting anger and fuming at unrighteousness and high places. And they're being tempted to, you know, let's do something. Grab your shotgun and let's go. We're going to do something about this. And David is speaking to them about where real power is. He's speaking to them uh, about how you inherit the earth. He's speaking to them about how you see God, how you're called sons of God. And virtually every element of the Beatitudes you will find in Psalm 37. The only thing you won't find explicitly is... um, Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You won't find that phrase. But for example, Jesus' phrase, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a quote from Psalm 37. The receivers of peace, those who are mourning, those who are being persecuted for righteousness, all of that 
is in Psalm 37. You can make the argument, really, that Jesus is taking this psalm in which David has expressed all these things as an old man with this wisdom, and he's putting it in the Beatitudes. So, the thing about hungering and thirsting, if you think about it, is it never goes away. When you're hungering and thirsting, it doesn't go away. Changing activities doesn't make it go away. Thinking this thought or that thought doesn't make it go away. It doesn't matter where you go or what you do. There's that ever-present reminder of your hunger and your thirst until they are satisfied. And so it is when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Whatever we do, there should be this ever-present desire for God's name to be hallowed, for His kingdom to come in new power and in new richness and flowering, and for His will to be done. Mourning and being oppressed in spirit, because unrighteousness is holding sway. Hungering and thirsting to see righteousness hold sway, to see Christ's name exalted, and being willing to suffer persecution for it. These are, this is all ways in which we own Christ as ours. And if we do this, if we identify with Christ in this way, there, it's going to bear a couple of specific fruits in our individual lives. Specifically, we will be meek and pure of heart. Meek and pure of heart. Now remember, meek is not weak. Moses was meek, and so was Jesus, we're told. And Paul will tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and 2, he will tell Timothy to be meek, and not fearful. Meek and not fearful. Apparently, Timothy had kind of a personality where he tended to be uh, timid and, and so forth. And Paul specifically tells him to not do that. He says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of cowardness or a spirit of weakness, but God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. He says, this is the spirit God has given us. And yet, a chapter later, he'll tell um, Timothy to be meek. You see, meekness goes with that. Meekness goes with power. It does not go with weakness. The essential characteristic of the meek in Scripture is that they wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. That's a phrase you hear many, many times in Scripture. And it's a phrase that you hear in Psalm 37. Listen to what it says. Verse 9. Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 10 and 11. In a little while, the wicked shall be no more, but the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the earth and dwell in it forever. So who are the meek? The meek are those who wait on the Lord, and thus are the righteous. Now, waiting on the Lord in the Bible, it sounds passive, but it's anything but. Waiting on the Lord is a very active concept in Scripture. It does mean that you're not grabbing uh, shotguns and heading off uh, in your four-wheeler uh, to Washington with your brand new set of snow tires. That's not what it means for sure. But it is a very active concept. It means to affirmatively entrust oneself and one's circumstances to God. 
and therefore to bear up, obey, and prevail. That's what waiting on the Lord means. Affirmatively to entrust oneself and one's circumstances to God, and therefore bear up, obey, and win. Prevail. Psalm 37, 34, Wait on the Lord and keep His way, and He shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. This is what it means to wait on the Lord. So it's an act of faith. It's not an act of resignation. It's an act of faith. Meekness, waiting on the Lord, this is the winning formula in Scripture. Now, meekness, waiting on the Lord, results in a life of active wisdom and obedience. Psalm 37, 30. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Now, this goes right along with what it means to be pure in heart. Pure in heart refers to a single-heartedness toward God. That's what it means to be pure in heart. It doesn't mean that you don't think of anything that has to do with this world and you float along like an airhead. No, it means that you're single-hearted in your devotion to God. Um, Purity of heart, being pure heart, is presented in Scripture as being the opposite of idolatry. Being pure in heart is the opposite of idolatry. Psalm 24, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. So purity of heart means to have God alone as your trust, God alone as your ultimate authority, and God alone as your ultimate shaping influence. So that when people see the total shape of your life, they get the image of Christ. Now Psalm 37 says that the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Shalom. So there's tying together this concept of meekness and inheriting the earth and also delighting in the abundance of shalom. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. Not just to help other people avoid hostilities, but to show people where the really good life, where God's shalom and blessedness, where it comes from. Shalom means completeness, wholeness, things as they were meant to be, everything that should be there and nothing that shouldn't, everything in its proper place and proportion, everything just right. That's what peace or shalom means in the Bible. And being a peacemaker means that you show in your life the true path, the only true path to God's peace. When Jesus preached this sermon, there were two paths being offered to the good life in God's covenant community, two two main paths. And both were at base political paths. One was the path of the Sadducees, which was to get in bed with the Romans, play the political game, curry favor, play the system and make it work for you. If you can't beat them, join them. And so the Sadducees were the secularists. They did not believe in the resurrection, and and so forth. They were the secularists, just play the game. The other path was the more popular path uh, with the people, and that was the path of the Pharisees. And it would end up being the path of revolt against the Romans. It It tried to draw a hard line, but it was going to become more and more radicalized and trend more and more toward open revolt. And so what they would do 
um, is they would end up um, uh, as in the mid uh, in like 66, 67 A.D. They would end up congregating in Jerusalem and around the temple and revolting against Rome in a military revolt. So this was basically the first century version of carrying the ark into battle like Israel did centuries before in 1 Samuel. Remember, they wanted to make sure that God would fight for them. So they grabbed the ark out of the tabernacle and they carry it off into battle with Philistines. Well, the first century version of this was they all congregate in Jerusalem around the temple. This is God's city. This is God's holy temple. And now he has to fight for us. Well, uh, apparently uh, they forgot what happened in 1 Samuel. Because in 1 Samuel, when they carried the ark in the battle, God gave it to the Philistines. He let the Philistines win and capture the ark. And that's the same thing he did in the first century. He let the Romans win, capture the city, and tear down the temple stone by stone. But after, in 1 Samuel, he allows the ark to be captured, what does God do then? So militarily, politically, it's been a total failure. But now that the ark's been captured, what does God do? He smashes Dagon. He smashes the God of the Philistines. He shows his power, but it's not shown in a political or a military uh, direction. The point is that God would not support Israel's political idols. The issue was not whether God was for Israel, but whether Israel was for God. And this is the same point that is made to Joshua when they're about to go and salt the first city in the land, which is Jericho. If you remember, he sees this time, he sees a man standing out in the field with a sword on. And so Joshua goes out there and says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the man says, no. No. He says, as the commander of the hosts of the Lord, I'm here. In other words, this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the commander of the Lord's angels. And he basically, this is why he tells Joshua, no. He says, you don't understand the issue. The issue is not whether I'm for you. The issue is whether you're for me. And we know that Jericho falls as a matter of worship. They walk around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they walk around the city seven times. And then the priests blow the trumpets and so forth. And the walls fall down. And you can just hear the conversation as this process is going on. Can't you just hear uh, the young men? I mean, both those who are 20 and therefore they're old enough to be in the army. And they got to go out there, march around the city and then go back to camp. And the next day they go out and they march around the city and then they go back to camp. And you're also going to be getting it from the 16-year-olds and the 18-year-olds who have to stay back to camp. It's like, this is lame. This is embarrassing. This is embarrassing. All my friends are texting me about how lame this is. Um, that's what they're going to think. But the point is, is that this is God's war and it's not one through political or military means. It's really one through, mar uh, through worship. Later on, when uh, Israel is coming up against the tiny city of Ai, it's so small they just say, well, we're going to muster the whole army here. We'll just send a few out, send a couple of battalions, go handle Ai, be back by lunch. Um, and so they go out there and they get routed. And then the whole army goes and they get routed. Why? Because there's, there's sin in the camp. 
So God is making it clear it's not about whether I'm with you, it's about whether you are with me. Jesus was saying the same thing in the first century, and he says the same thing to us today. What this means is that the ultimate issues and the ultimate answers are never political. They're never political, they're never economic, they're never foreign relations, they're never matters of national security. Now the point here is not that politics is irrelevant or somehow beneath us. The point is that politics is a reflection of religion. Economics is a reflection of religion. Foreign policy is a reflection of religion, of who we trust, who we obey, and who shapes our lives. So politics is not beneath us, but we're beneath politics, if you catch my drift. We're operating ultimately at a more foundational level. So we are to be involved in politics. We're to be involved fighting the culture war, as the, as the name goes today. Um, but we're to understand that that's not the ultimate war. For the last, I don't know, 50 years since evangelicals have kind of rushed into the culture war and have fought the culture war on an unprecedentedly massive scale in terms of numbers, money, and votes, really when you look at the big picture, the most we've ever succeeded on doing is simply retarding the rate of cultural dissent. That's all we've done. Right? So the, 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 the battleground, it shifts ever leftward politically and ever downward morally. But one of the big problems is, it's not, it's not, the problem is not that we're fighting that battle. That's a battle we should be fighting. The problem is that we're like a, the guy who shows up to a gunfight with a knife. All right? The problem is not the battlefield we're fighting on. The problem is the battlefield we vacated over a century ago. We're fighting a political war. We're fighting a morality war when we're in a worship war, which we're not fighting. Culture is about worship. Culture is about God or idols. And while we fight on these other levels, we have got to re-engage on the great, the deep battlefield which we have abandoned over a century ago, and that is the battle of who is God? Who is God? Who is the Lord? So, we should desire and want our country to move in the direction of righteousness, if our country is headed toward a cliff, and it is, we should work to have it headed toward the cliff at 30 miles an hour rather than 100 miles an hour. Right? But it also means that we need to understand that even at 30 miles an hour, we're still headed toward the cliff. And the only thing that is going to reverse our, change, uh, our direction is not a political change, but a sea change. And a sea change only happens when the God's Spirit works and millions and millions and millions of people are changed. That's a sea change. And that only happens when God's people understand the fight that they're in and they fight it with the weapons that God intends, which is a worship war. So being peacemakers today means that we fight the culture war. We need to be engaged politically in, in these various ways. We can't sit up on our high horse and act like we're too good for this stuff and it doesn't really matter.
because God desires to see righteousness there. So we need to be involved. But being peacemakers today means living in such a way that it's obvious, both that we are seeking the peace of the city, which is what God told His people to do in Jeremiah. You're about to go off into captivity. He says, seek the peace of the city where you are. In other words, be involved. Seek to have influence things as much as you can politically and pray for the city where you are. So we're to pray for our country. We're to be engaged. But we're also to live in such a way that it's clear that the ultimate issues have to do with honoring the one true God as God. The ultimate issues do not have to do with politics. Now that's what, meant, that's what being peacemakers meant in the first century. And that's what being peacemakers means today. This leads us, as we come to the end, to what it means to be merciful. I already told you that mercy is entire, it's really a better translation of the word would be God's unchanging love. It's that which causes God to set his love on us when we're his enemies and to maintain his love upon us, to give his son to save us and to love us to the end. And so peacemakers mean seeking Seeking the peace of the city, it also means seeking the peace of the city of God, which is what we sing about in Psalm 122. We seek the peace particularly of God's church, for we understand that the church is the engine of the kingdom. Any great sea change, any great thing that's going to happen out there is going to start right here and not otherwise. And so we are to seek as Jesus commands us to love one another with the same kind of unchanging love, the same kind of devotion, the same kind of loyalty, the same kind of fanhood, if you will, that Jesus has toward us. The Apostle John said, We know we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. That's how we know. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who doesn't love his brother abides in death. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is how we seek the peace of the church, the city, the great city on a hill. Not just the church universal out there, but also the church here. In fact, the only way we can really seek the peace and really seek to love the church, the universal church out there, is by learning, loving this church here. We don't really have the opportunity, except in our prayers, to love the universal church out there. The only opportunity we have to really love and be loyal is right here in local churches. And so we are to show that kind of love. That's our badge that we are, in fact, disciples. And finally, we need to do all of this by faith, not just do it. When we mourn, we're not just to mourn. There's mourning, and then there's mourning by faith. Mourning just mourns. Mourning just sighs and says, what can I do? Oh, well, what can I do? What can be done? Things are getting worse and worse. Mourning by faith mourns in light of the promise that we will be filled. It's going somewhere. It's looking somewhere. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We can do it in a passive way that says, oh, well, I wish it were different. I wish it weren't so, 
or we can hunger and thirst for righteousness by faith, which means we do it in specific hope and faith that Christ is going to make good on his promise to fill us and to fill the world with his righteousness. When we are peacemakers, when we are pointing the true way to shalom, we do it in specific hope and faith that Christ is going to make good on his promises that we will be called sons of God. When we are pure in heart, when we avoid idolatry, when we look to God alone, we do it in specific hope that he will make good on the promise that we shall see God. When we are meek, when we wait on the Lord, when we understand this is the path to power, not simply a matter of resignation, we do so in specific faith and hope that we will this, in this way inherit the earth. So we want to do these things by faith. Would you rather see God or inherit the earth? Well, could I have both? Yes, actually, you will have both or you will have neither. For they go together and not otherwise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.